So we're looking at the book of Exodus, um, really kind of following the story of Moses. And last week, if you were with us, we were looking at Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. And we talked about how the Ten Commandments in many ways function like um, marriage vows. God covenants, which is another term for marriage. He covenants himself to his people. And he tells them, you are my chosen and treasured people. Keep my covenant and you will experience the blessings of this relationship that you're created to enjoy And in Exodus 24, it says that Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And all the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This is in essence like their declaration of intent when we have marriage ceremonies. The next seven chapters are detailed descriptions about building a tabernacle. In other words, um, it's kind of plans God is making to build a home, to dwell with his presence with his people. And then boom, Exodus 32 happens. Um, the saddest picture in all of God's word of idolatry. And so it, it, at a minimum, we can, we can acknowledge that it's so hard and confusing for us to understand what's going on here and to relate. I was having a conversation with Sid Druin, our pastor of community groups, who's a huge gift to our community, if you don't know Sid. And he said, yeah, one of the ways you can think about this that maybe helps you understand is um, you have a couple who gets married. They have a wedding ceremony, they take vows, the bride and the groom both promise to faithfully, unconditionally love and stay committed to one another until death do them part. And then they go on their honeymoon, and it's great. They're having an awesome time, oceanfront villa. And one morning, um, the groom gets up and says, hey, I need to step out and go into town and call our builder um, to finish conversations about our permanent home that we're going to live in and raise a family and be a blessing to our community And so he leaves, and the bride says, great, have fun, right? I'm going to grab a magazine and go out on the beach. Well, he's gone. An hour goes by. It turns into two hours. She begins to get worried. She can't get in touch with him. She doesn't know what he's doing. Well, two hours turns into three, turns into four, and um, she begins to get worried. Then she begins to get panicked. By the end of the the day, she is um, basically committed to the belief that um, I'm forsaken, that, that he is gone. I don't know what has happened to him. And then later that night, he returns. But when he returns to his complete shock and horror, he finds his wife in their honeymoon villa with another man who looks a lot like him, maybe similar stature, similar height, similar hair color. But here she is with a counterfeit husband. And to make matters worse, as he takes in the shock of the whole scene, he he realizes that she has actually taken many of the gifts that he had given to her, namely jewelry and other precious items, and given them to her new counterfeit husband. And in essence, that's what's going on in this story. Like throughout the scriptures, one of the terms that God uses to talk about sin is the term adultery. And the reason that's important um, is not to, to just add deeper shame on us as we wrestle with our own sin nature, but to help us understand that when we sin, we don't just simply break the rule um, of a sovereign ruler and king, but we really break the heart of our loving God. In Ezekiel 23, the Lord says, they have, referring to his people, committed adultery. Blood is on their hands. With their idols, they have committed adultery. Now, If we're honest, what are we thinking, even as Cindy read that passage? If you're familiar with the story, and God comes to his people, 
He says, I am the Lord your God who covenanted himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I've seen your suffering, and I've seen your persecution, and I'm going to redeem you. And then he does. And he destroys Pharaoh, and he carries out unreal plagues, and he delivers them out of bondage in Egypt. And then this happens. If you're honest, your knee-jerk reaction is, what a bunch of idiots. Who would do that? Meaning, I would never do that. (laughs) And this is why we need to remember, and I love the way Keller says this. This is kind of one of our absolute fundamental rules for Scripture interpretation. If we feel more righteous, that's another term for if you feel better than others as you read the Bible, you are misreading it. You're missing the central message. We are reading it and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, when it critiques us, And then, out of that place, it encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. So I'm going to pray right now that God will do for us what we don't naturally do for ourselves and help us actually understand that this story really is a mirror and a reflection of our own hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. Thank you that you have not left yourself without testimony or witness, but you have graciously and kindly given us your word, this living and active, and by the power of your spirit, clearly not our own intellect or ability, but by your spirit and grace alone, you can actually change our hearts, bringing us from death to life, granting us greater self-awareness, maturing and growing us, planting us more securely in your love, freeing us from all of the counterfeit gods that we pursue. And we know that's primarily true because in the fullness of time, our Lord Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll help us to worship you and to trust you and to see you as we work our way through your Word. And we do want to continue to pray for all the, oh, just the, weight and heaviness that the Ford family is carrying. In many ways, Lord, we know it's going to be so much harder in the next day or so when family leaves and there's no more decisions and planning and people stop bringing meals and they just wake up and realize that their daughter's gone. We pray that your spirit will draw near to them. Thank you that you never leave or forsake your people even in the valley of the shadow of death. Help us as your people to see others that are hurting, to have compassionate hearts and to Weep with those that are weeping. Help us to consider the interests of others as more important than our own. Thank you that you have done that, Lord Jesus. Help us to worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chuck DeGroat in his book, Leaving Egypt, says this, clearly addressing our knee-jerk reaction of wanting to think, I would never do what the foolish Israelites have done in this story. He says, we cannot fall victim to a kind of chronological arrogance, assuming that we as modern enlightened people would react and respond differently. He goes on to say, I can understand how the Israelites fell so quickly into idolatry, not 40 days until their wilderness journey, and so can you. Insecurity and uncertainty frustrate us. The anxious feeling that wells up in moments like these sends us running for our old habits. Irritation and anger grow. A feeling of entitlement whispers, you deserve more. I know this all too well. And I've worked with enough people to know that these inner mechanisms are universal. We are the Israelites of old. And our security strategies are not so different 
from theirs. In other words, what he is explaining is that we need to understand what's taking place in this story, as shocking and even confusing and as weird as it may seem, is a mirror, a reflection of our own lives and how we as God's chosen and treasured possession relate to him as we experience wilderness moments. Now, in my opinion, one of the absolute greatest resources to help you dig in a little bit more deeply and relate to all the various idols in your heart that pull you away from the one true living God is Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Guides. And that's why in the suggested resources, it's not a typo. I put it in there three times in a row to emphasize. <laughs> it's like, holy, 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 you really emphasize. Like every time I read, I've read it like four times and every time I read it, almost every single chapter, I'm extremely convicted, humbled, but also encouraged by God's kindness to me. He says, I am not asking whether or not you have rival guides. I assume that we all do. They are hidden in every one of us. Keller's not the first to say this throughout history. Theologians have highlighted this truth that John Calvin says, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We just saw last week in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment the Lord gave after telling them, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt. You are my chosen and treasured possession. Have no other guides before me. He doesn't start with, don't lie and hurt others with your tongue. And you may think, well, wait a minute, I do that much more frequently. God says, no, you don't. The thing that you do most often is run after counterfeit guides. Now, what's really, really scary to me about this passage is that they ask for an idol because Moses is not there anymore. They tell Aaron, hey, we need someone to go before us, which is another way of saying we're afraid. We need someone to help us face the fears, uncertainty, and help us deal with the anxiety that we are facing in life. And then it says as they fashion this idol, the, the, the craziest and scariest part is that they still think they are worshiping the one true guide. In verse 5, it says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar, and then he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, anytime we read in our English Bibles the word Lord in all caps like that, that is the translation of the name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. Earlier in this passage, you see that a few times it says, hey, these are your guides that saved you. These are your guides that redeemed you from slavery. That's more of a generic term, Elohim, that is used. But here they're making it very clear, hey, we're worshiping these idols, but we still think we're having a celebration and festival to Jesus, as it were. And so what this does is, is it, I think it, it highlights how absolutely blind you can be to the worship of idols in your life, even if you're going to church. So, so by no means can we say this doesn't apply to me because I faithfully attend and I participate in the um, sacraments and the means of grace. This is probably true for other people. This should absolutely make us step back and say, oh my Lord, please, by your spirit, help me become aware of, of things that I am completely blind of. Keller defines an idol as whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe this kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. The biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea. It integrates intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. 
I was thinking about, you know, we live in Charlotte, and allergies are terrible in Charlotte, and they're terrible this time of year. And if you've been to an allergist and they run a test, you know, they, they do like the pricks all over your back. To my knowledge, I've never heard of anyone going to the allergist and he says, you know what, I tested you for 65 possible allergens and you only have one, ragweed. So we're just going to focus on that and you'll be good to go. Including myself, everybody else that I've talked to is like, yeah, you get tested for 65 and there's like 20 to 30 to 40 different things that you're allergic to. I'm like allergic to nine types of grass and all types of trees and all kind of stuff. It's terrible. And the Bible says that's what our sin nature does with idolatry. It's not like, oh, here's just this one thing over here, and if I can just kind of isolate and focus and target that, then I'll be good to go. Idolatry, the question is, is not um, which one, but how many are at work in my life, and what am I blind to? In their book, Leadership and Self-Deception, the Arbinger Institute says self-deception is the most central of all problems. It blinds us to the true causes of problems. And once we're blind, all the solutions that we can think of will actually make matters worse. Members of every culture participate to one degree or another in their own individual and cultural self-deceptions. So part of what the Lord is inviting us to today is just to um, begin to live with at least a little bit of wisdom to say, Lord, I know I am blind to things, and by definition, I don't know what they are. And so I need you and I need others in my life to help me see where I'm deceived. I remember one night, Stephanie and I were going to dinner with some good friends of ours, and we went and picked them up, and we had not decided ahead of time where we were going to go eat, which frustrated me because I believe proper preparation prevents poor performance. But I'm like, whatever. We're going to dinner, so we pick up our friends, and we're driving. And um, I and the other husband are sitting in the front and the two wives are in the back chatting it up and they're throwing out ideas they're like let's just drive towards South Park and where do you want to go and I'm like you know what I'm just I don't really care and so they're just throwing out ideas and every idea that the ladies are throwing out my buddy in the passenger seat is just shooting down overpriced not any good I could cook food better than them boom 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 and the whole time I'm like man this guy he's like pretty arrogant and so opinionated and so finally when it's like we don't really know where we're going to go eat and it kind of quiets for a second I go hey man have you ever met someone that is as opinionated as you are? And he goes, you. <laughs> and my wife and his wife go, yep, that's right. <laughs> and that was not a setup. Like I, and I can still remember thinking, I wasn't even mad. I was, at first I was mad, but when, they, when my wife and his wife said, you, I was like, wow. Like, I really am um, unaware of this. Because I, for at least five minutes, have been thinking that I was a lot better than this guy with how arrogant he was being with his opinions about restaurants. And in general, I wouldn't even say I care that much about restaurants. I'm like, I think I care about so many other things. And the point is, I, and maybe you, (laughs) can be so blind and self-deceived in areas that matter. And so if we think about, okay, how can I know? What are some good diagnostics? I love um, Keller and Counterfeit God says, one of the best ways is to pay attention to your emotions. And commentators point out that what the Israelites are, are saying in this passage of we need a God who will go before us is um, we're really anxious and afraid. And in this culture, having someone go before you um, meant that they would go out and fight your battles. That this is a means of security, that someone is out in front of us protecting us. And so in Counterfeit Guides, Keller says, idolatry, when it is mapped into the future, when our idols are threatened, leads to paralyzing fear and anxiety. 
when it is mapped into the past, when we fail our idols, it leads to irremediable guilt and shame. When it is mapped into our present life, when our idols are blocked or removed, it roils us with anger and despair. And so when you experience these different emotions, when you find yourself experiencing fear, anxiety, guilt, shame, anger, or despair, it's a good opportunity to to try to take inventory on what exactly is going on in my heart. There is some idol at work that is leading to these emotions. And the reason this is so important to consider isn't just from the negative of stop being an idolater or God's going to punish you. But in Jonah 2, verse 8, he says, those that pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That term translated steadfast love is a term hesed, um, which could also be translated grace. But I like the translation here of steadfast love because in part the Israelites think um, God hasn't been steadfast with us because Moses, our mediator, is gone. If he was steadfast, he would have remained and he would have been faithful And he says here, and this is when Jonah is in the belly of a whale, he says, when you worship and pursue and trust vain idols, you are forsaking the hope of steadfast love. In other words, you are forsaking, absolutely guaranteeing you're never going to experience the thing that your heart longs for the most. And then we notice, understandably, God's response in light of this idolatry is anger and outrage because God covenants himself to his people and he loves them His anger is directly proportional to the love that he has for them. The same as anyone who is in a love relationship and experiences deep betrayal. And so the question that immediately rises is, how can this marriage relationship between God and his people be saved? And the answer the text gives us is through the intercession of Moses and the unbelievable mercy of God. Notice in verse 10, God says, now let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Translation, destroy them. Okay, think of what he did to the Egyptians or think about the flood. Okay, 2.0. And then he says, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now, if we pause for one quick second, do we actually hear what God is offering Moses? God is offering Moses, you get all the blessings right now, all the glory all the fame. I will give it all to you, Moses. Just wait a second while I destroy them. This is an unbelievable statement that God makes. If you've read the book of Job, you know early in the book, we're not told why God allows this to happen, but in a conversation with Satan, God says, if you consider my servant Job, he's righteous and blameless in heart. And Satan says to him, does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. If you stretch out your hand and take away all his earthly blessings, then he'll curse you to your face. In other words, what Satan is saying to God is we don't have to kid ourselves. No one loves you for you. They only love you and go through the motions of obeying you because they want things from you. Moses here, when God says, I'll destroy them and give all the promises to you. You can have the kingdom. You can have the legacy, the inheritance, the name that will last for ages. Moses says, no. Instead, in this unbelievable surprise, 
He intercedes on behalf of the people. Not because they don't deserve punishment, but rather he pleads for God to be merciful. It says, Moses implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? You brought them out of the land of Egypt Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is an amazing um, passage where Moses is interceding and stepping in on behalf of the people. And you see the deep concern he has even first for the glory of the Lord. When Jesus tells us we are to pray, hallowed be your name, that means there should be a deep concern in our life of how is God's name and character going to be regarded by others. He says, should the Egyptians say it was only with evil intent he brought them out? In other words, God is just a cruel, harsh taskmaster who only uses his power to pour out punishment and wrath. He did it to the Egyptians, now he's going to do it to the Israelites. Moses says, no, may it never be that people think of you that way. And then notice what he calls on God to do. He calls on God to do the very thing that the Israelites failed to do. The thing that we are commanded to do as much as anything else in Scripture, remember. He says, remember the covenant that you made, the promise that you gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You promised that you were going to do a great work and that you were going to bless the nations through him. Lord, please remember your promise. And then it says that God changes his mind. Now, this is fascinating. People want to know, wait a minute, is God sovereign Or is his actions always based on human response and action? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And it would be wrong and foolish of me to try to put that in a neat little box. God is absolutely sovereign. Ephesians 1 verse 11, he does all things according to the counsel of his will. No one can thwart his plan. And the prayers and behavior and actions of his people carry weight. It is a divine mystery that we will never fully comprehend and we are called to submit to. In James 5, he reminds us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If we really believe this, think about how much we would pray. Think about how quick we would hit our knees instead of in anger, outrage, or any other emotion, seek to exert control over different situations in which we're really not in control. John Calvin said, one of the greatest sins of immature pastors who don't actually believe that the prayer of righteous people has great work is that they're rash and that they're always stirring up controversy. I printed that quote out and taped it right in front of my desk because I'm so rash. I pray and pray that the Lord would help me to be slow to anger quicker to get on my knees and pray to ask God Lord will you help me remember what's true about who you are to help me remember like Moses that you are a God who never breaks covenant even when we do 
Oh, Lord, please remember your promises and your grace and your kindness. Help me to remember it as I find myself chasing full speed all the time after all of these false guides and forsaking my hope of steadfast love. In Psalm 106, it says that God's people made a calf and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. It says after that in verse 23, Therefore the Lord said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And so how did Moses do this? We just saw that he said, Lord, please remember your promise and your covenant. But he takes it down another level. Verses 30 to 34, the next day Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Do we understand what Moses is saying? He doesn't go up and say, let me try to make atonement. Oh, Lord, they have made a huge mistake. Please give us a second chance with ten more commandments. Or please just send a plague. Or, or please let us try to come to some agreement. He says, Lord, if you're not willing to forgive them, kill me. I'll sacrifice myself in their place. So not only has Moses says, no, I don't want you to make a great nation out of me and give me all the earthly promises and blessings at their expense, but I'm asking you to kill me so that they can be forgiven. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 33, the Lord says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people that you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it, and I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will give you the land that is flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And it said, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments." So what's happening here? Moses' intercession has worked. And the Lord has said, okay, I relent. I'm not going to destroy the people like they deserve. I'll still keep my promise and I'll send my angel to go before you and I'll give you the promised land. I'll give you all the material earthly blessings. I'll give you the house that you wanted. I'm going to give you all the things that you ever dreamed of, but I'm not going with you. Now, again, based on Satan's argument with God in Job chapter 1, overwhelmingly, we would be like, absolutely, I'm good. Where do I sign? I'm in. I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to deal with you, God, but I can get all of your blessings. I told you, even in my family, because we grew up in Mullins, South Carolina, and I didn't know a single person who didn't attend the Baptist, Methodist, or Presbyterian church, because that's what you did in the deep south Bible belt. But the week after my dad died, when all the family left and the house was quiet, I remember asking my mom, are we going to go to church? And she said, if that's what going to church gets you, why bother? Now, I remember that, that statement kind of shook me, right? Like, it, just like in the Deep South Bible Belt, that, that, was, that, that sounds like a blasphemous thing to say. But she was being super honest. That may have been one of the most honest things that she had ever confessed in our home. Translation, we were only always going to church to get the promised land. We didn't really want to bother or deal with God. 
And I think overwhelmingly, she was confessing what most people are doing when they go to church. And this is what God offers right here. He says, you know what? I I won't destroy you. You can have it. You can go. You can go. But I'm not going with you. And then in verse 15, Moses says, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I don't want it. I don't want any of those worldly blessings if I can't have you. Like, like, do we get in any way, like, how unbelievably shocking this is? I, I think what Moses is confessing is similar to what the psalmist in Psalm 73 confesses. And if you've never read Psalm 73, it will be great for your heart to read this afternoon on the Sabbath. But he starts out super honest and he says, Lord, I have been so foolish. I have envied the arrogance and prosperity of the wicked. I have kept your rules and statutes and sought to be obedient in vain because I'm not experiencing the blessings that other people that are wicked experience. I can't understand it. What is going on with the relationship with you? And then he says that in his confusion, he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and he began to gain understanding and clarity. And through worship, his heart began to change. So then he confessed this truth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I think something similar to that actually happens when we go to funerals. Where we are in the valley of the shadow of death and we're faced with the fact that every single one of us is going to die and we have to wrestle with, is there any hope that actually conquers the grave? And when the Spirit unites our hearts to the hope of Christ who conquered death for us, then I think we in some small way can confess that same thing. There's nothing on earth that I desire, Lord, more than you. See, the reality is Moses, even if God would have said, okay, I'm going to kill you and let them go, he wouldn't have been able to fully make atonement for their sin. Because Moses was sinful as well. We saw this all throughout Hebrews. That the sacrifices had to be spotless and blameless. But even all of those spotless and blameless sacrifices, they were only a reminder of the sins of the people year after year. Only Jesus, the greater Moses, the sinless Lamb of God, only his sacrifice could ever make atonement for the people. See, here in this text, we see Moses being a picture of, of Jesus who was to come. Moses was not blotted out. His name was not removed from God's book of life, but Jesus our Savior was. He was blotted out from the land of the living. He was forsaken by God, crying out even on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. He did that so that you and I could be saved so that the penalty due our sins could be paid and that we could be his chosen and treasured people. And so in some sense, we can then ask, well, how was Moses able to say this? How was he able to say no to these types of promises? Well, I think the answer lies in what Jesus explained in Luke 7, that he who has forgiven much loves much. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, you know that he had grown up experiencing all the riches and wealth and blessings of Egypt. And then he actually became a murderer. And it was only when he began to experience the grace of God that his heart began to change. And we have another New Testament example of someone very similar to this, and that's the Apostle Paul. 
And with Moses and Paul, as the gospel of God's grace began to sink into their heart, that they didn't just have gratitude, but they became the kind of people whose hearts broke over the thought of others being destroyed because of their sins. This is one of the craziest passages in the whole Bible to me that absolutely blows me away. In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to to the flesh. You can change the words there of accursed and cut off and just substitute exactly what Moses says, blot me out from your book if that means they'll be saved. Paul is saying, my other Jewish brethren who hate me, who are stoning me and beating me and arresting me unjustly, I have so much anguish and sorrow that they are forsaking their hope of steadfast love that Lord, if they can be saved by cutting me off, please do it. This is unbelievable to think about. But Moses and Paul were normal people, just like us. And so what this means is, is that God can create this same type of love and longing in our heart for others who are forsaking their hope of steadfast love. What this really means is that, as I said earlier, we can't simply identify one or two idols and say, okay, I'm just going to stop that worship because that's foolish The only way you can be set free from slavery to a false guide is through worship of the true guide. In other words, there is an expulsive power that comes from a greater affection. Paul said to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the greatest That's the thing that we confess over and over again as we come to the Lord's table. To be strengthened, nourished, to renew our marriage vows, to drink deeply of his unconditional love given to us, his wayward bride. That's why I love officiating and hate officiating weddings at the same time. Mainly because I'm so convicted by how much I fail my marriage vows and all the ways I selfishly fail to love my wife unconditionally but I also love that opportunity because it makes me grateful that my wife has chosen to marry me and stay married to me. But more than that, that Jesus has covenanted himself to me forever. And so my prayer and hope is as we come today to receive this bread and this wine, is that our hearts will be overwhelmed with a deep sense of gratitude at God's kindness given to us. For on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and he broke it and he told his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar manner, after supper, he took the cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink from it, all of you. If you are here and you are seeking to rest in Christ alone as your only hope, even though you struggle and chase after counterfeit guides, if you are seeking to trust Christ, then we want to invite you to come to this table. But hear this, if you're not and you're new and you're confused and you're not even sure where you are in relation to Jesus, we're glad you're here. Please keep coming, but don't come and partake of this meal. There's no benefit in faking it. 
And so it's our practice here um, to come and receive the elements from the elders, go back and hold it at your seat, and then we will partake together. The inner rings of each tray are real wine, the outer are grape juice. There's some gluten-free prepackaged elements. I'm going to pray to set the elements apart, and if the elders will come forward, then we will partake. Lord Jesus, we pray that through this holy bread and wine, you will maintain our fainting breath by union with you, our living Lord, and the interest we have in your death. Thank you, Jesus, our lamb, that you have been given for us. Let us keep this feast. Strengthen and nourish our weak and wounded hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.